Support for Decoder comes from NetSuite. Here are some numbers all business owners should know for 2024. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash decoder. That's netsuite.com slash decoder to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash decoder. Support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. I gotta say, I am really excited about this week's episode. It's one of the looser conversations I've had on Decoder, but there is so much in it. I promise, even if you're not into cars, you will learn something from this episode. Today, I'm talking to Doug DeMiro. He's one of my all-time favorite YouTubers, and his channel is incredibly simple. He reviews cars. Uh, New cars, old cars, weird cars. He drives them, he pushes all the buttons, and he tells you about their quirks and features. That's a phrase that is now inextricably linked to Doug in the car community. He's a big deal. And last year, Doug expanded beyond YouTube and launched a car auction website called Cars and Bids which is tightly focused on selling cars made after 1981. That's something Doug told me he will never change, that's the rule, and it's because he's focused on modern classics for a younger audience of car collectors. Now, a lot of YouTubers I know are always trying to hedge against YouTube. They're trying to find another business because they're worried about burnout or algorithm changes, ad rates, all these things that we hear about in the creator economy. So I really wanted to know about Doug's businesses. How does he make his videos? How big is his team? How does he manage his costs? Does he worry about burnout? These are questions that every creator faces, and I think it's worth exploring them more often and more publicly. I also wanted to know about cars and bids. How's it going almost a year later? How many people work there? Is this the exit strategy from YouTube grind? And if so, how's he gonna get people to use it without calling it out in every YouTube video? I think the answers to all of that will surprise you. What's also going to surprise you is how much data from YouTube Doug actually tracks, where he uses that data to make decisions about what videos to make, and where he chooses to ignore that data. Of course, Doug is also obviously a product reviewer, and we review a lot of things at The Verge. I'm a product reviewer too. So we talked about what reviews are for, who they serve, and how Doug manages to keep himself independent in the face of auto industry pressure and glad-handing, and the various pressures of YouTube itself, how money works on YouTube. Doug was pretty direct that he considers himself a journalist, and very direct about how various car companies try to get favorable reviews. Like I said, there's a lot here, even if you're not interested in cars. Okay, Doug DeMiro, here we go. Doug DeMiro, you're the host of a very popular YouTube car review channel, and you run Cars and Bids, a car auction website. Welcome to Decoder. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I feel like I've watched so many of your videos. I've, I have to say cars and bids the way that you say it or, <laughs> or go my own way. <laughs> right, right. Cars and bids. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very interested in the dynamic between you running your YouTube channel and then using the channel to launch a car auction website. Uh, but let's start with the YouTube channel. It's very interesting. We talked to a lot of creators on the show. There's a lot happening in sort of creator space. When did you launch the channel and when did it become a full-time gig? I launched the channel in the fall of 2013. There was one video that I launched with. I didn't have any other videos planned. <laughs> it was just the one. What happened basically was I was writing for Jalopnik, which was like sort of the, the verge, you know, tech blog of car blogs. Basically, it was like the big one that everybody went to and I had gotten a note from a reader who said, hey, man, you should make videos. And this was in 13. I mean, this was kind of the forefront of this. And I was like, huh, that's an idea, which, of course, now that's how everybody starts. You know, blogs, video is more now the way to do it. So so I launched the uh, the channel at the end of 13, and then it took off. And at some point in 15, I realized that I was actually getting more views on the videos than on the writing. And I was like, well, maybe I should just be transitioning. It's never technically been a full-time job. I've always been doing something else on the side, but it has been sort of my main source of income since I guess the end of 16 or the beginning of 17. So it's been five years now. Crazy to think about, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because those five years seem very short, but also in, in internet time, you've lived through 50 right. different iterations of right. YouTube. <laughs> right. I'm curious, how is your, your strategy of... I went back and watched some of your earliest videos... And yeah. they bear a striking resemblance to the videos you put up now. <laughs> yeah. The format is kind of the same. How have you thought about the sort of the pressures of YouTube as a platform changing versus what your audience is telling you versus what you want to make? I will say doing car reviews, you're kind of insulated from some of the pressures of YouTube. I watched from the sidelines the whole Logan Paul and the Suicide Forest, and I watched from the sidelines the whole demonetization due to cursing, and then I watched the child-friendly ad thing slash child videos. Like, none of that really applied to me. I'm doing car reviews. Like, it hasn't really been that big of a deal in terms of how I structure my content to kind of deal with, the, with YouTube and with their changing policies. But there is this sort of pressure as a YouTuber to exist, to create content and that sort of thing. And that's always been the tough part of it for me. In terms of the changing the format, it's interesting. You know, when I first started, I didn't know what to do. I thought I would do Top Gear style stuff, like funny videos and stupid car videos and stuff. And I kind of over the years changed a little bit more and more to do these car reviews that I do now, which I prefer, frankly. So it worked out for the best. But initially, I mean, I did a video like how to pick up women in a Ferrari, which was so <laughs> stupid. And there was all these dumb stuff, but the reviews are where I prefer to be. And it seems like that's where a lot of the audience is. More and more people are using YouTube to actually buy a car. To, you know, is this something I'm interested in? How does this work? How, you know, what's, is this better than that? Whatever. And more and more people are there. And the automakers haven't quite caught up with that completely yet, but people are there. And so those videos, have, they do really well. The first magazine that I loved, it's a competition between Wired and, and Car and Driver. I feel like my car magazine consumption has directly tapered in correlation with how much car YouTube I watch. Whereas on all the other kinds of stuff, I actually I read more in all these other places. But when it comes to cars, I want to see it. And like you're very focused on, I'm just going to push this button and see what happens and show you what happens right. in a way that you know, no written piece of journalism can, can necessarily capture. 
but that kind of focus and distilling right now you have a format you have a trademark have you trademarked quirks and features is like <laughs> no but i think at this point if you were trying to use that the youtube audience they would rip you apart so it's it might as well be trademarked <laughs> yeah that's great I, you have like a secondary enforcement mechanism like you don't need to right. file the paperwork <laughs> right. the art the right. stan army's got your back do you find that format limiting like that's kind of the other side of the coin right that now you're known to deliver x thing and you kind of have to fit everything into X format. Do you find that limiting? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, for a long time, I had a second channel where I kind of experimented a little bit more. And now I've taken the videos that I used to put on my second channel and I post them on the weekends on my main channel because I think there was an algorithm shift that kind of allowed me to do that. But yeah, it's limiting for sure. It would be kind of fun to do some other stuff occasionally. But I have to say, like, I actually love this the most of all the content I've ever made, written, video, anything. I love checking out the new cars and pushing all the buttons and seeing how it all works. And based on the views, it seems like people people seem to like that as well. So I don't know. It is a little limiting, but I love it. And I've been doing the this format probably for about five years, four and a half years, and I'm not even slightly tired of it. I would do it for the rest of time. Every single time to this day, I go get in a new car. There's like this sense of excitement <laughs> and wonderment. Now, some car, you know, I've just done a certain new Mercedes, then I do a different one. A lot of the tech's the same. That stuff, I'm not as excited. But, like, I just did this Hyundai pickup truck, which is, like, this little car-based Hyundai truck. It's really weird. And I just was so excited when they delivered that. I was like, oh, my God, I can't wait to see what the hell this thing's going to be about. That's still there, believe it or not. It's the Santa Fe. The Santa Cruz. The Santa, the Santa, the Santa Fe, Cruz. Which is a terrible dis- naming decision, in my opinion. You got two cars called Santa yeah. something. That's not good. For the listener, if you haven't seen a picture of this truck, it does look just in- <laughs> remarkably crazy. Um, right. You just mentioned an algorithm shift that allowed you to start posting more videos. That is kind of what we're talking about here. Like, did you get an email? Did the head of YouTube, did Neil Mohan, the, the chief product officer at YouTube, let you know? Did you perceive it? How are you tracking that stuff? That's a question not that many people ask me about. You know, when people come to me on the street, they only want to talk about cars. They don't really ask about the business of YouTube, which is half of what I do, right? Like half of it is cars and half of it is is YouTube. I only ever get to discuss this with my fellow creators. And so it's always interesting <laughs> to me to have these conversations. I am pretty obsessive as far as YouTube creators go. I don't know anyone else who's quite as obsessive as me in terms of tracking metrics. And I'm sure there are others, but in terms of car YouTubers, certainly none of them. So I am able to kind of pinpoint what I believe to be moments in time where there are algorithm shifts. YouTube doesn't publicize it. They don't want you to know. There are a couple of reasons. They don't, it's a proprietary algorithm. They don't want you to know what it is. But also, I've always found it a little bit strange. If they told us a little bit more about the algorithm, we would probably be able to create content that better served it. But they don't do that. And so anyway, the point is, I notice these shifts and I notice them with other creators. I pay a lot of attention to what other people are doing, what kind of views they're getting. So for the one that we're talking about, I had started a second channel to do some more creative content because it became clear to me that sort of lesser viewed videos would pull down your more viewed videos. And what I've learned, what I believe to be a recent algorithm shift was that's not true anymore. And maybe the algorithm is a little bit more advanced now and it can detect these videos that are lesser and kind of distinguish between them and the and the bigger ones. Although I should note, I'm still kind of workshopping that and I'm not sure that's true. I still need to look at some more data to come up with that conclusion, but that's what it's looked like to me. And so I don't know, you just have to pay close attention and hope for the best. You say you tra- you're obsessed about tracking. What are the metrics you're tracking? Is it view counts? Is it drop-offs? Is it minutes watched? It's changed over the years with the algorithm. You know, a couple of years ago, first five hours was everything. Uh, within the first five hours, I could tell you how popular a video is going to be. That's changed completely. The algorithm now no longer rewards instant success. It kind of builds over time. 
And so I tracked that for a long time. Like the first five hours was everything. And the loss rate between hour one and two and three and four. What I've learned now is the week, the one week number for views is a really, really good metric. And the change between the next morning and the one week is a really good metric. How much is it kind of growing in that time? That now is sort of the metric for me that it's going to be a more successful video. But I also track a lot of other stuff, you know, revenue and yeah, watch time. One thing I've been interested recently, YouTube has provided a new metric, which is you can see where in your video people drop off, like at exactly what point. I found that tremendously interesting. Oh, here's what people don't want to see. Here's what they want to see more of. You will even see sometimes videos actually increase in the middle of the video, presumably because people have been linked or something. And it's like, oh, well, maybe that should have been sooner to hook more people or whatever. And that is really interesting stuff. They give you so much data that you can peruse. What's really interesting about this is it is true. You seem like the most data informed YouTuber that I've talked to, but the format is like, yeah. Like, give me an example. Like, I, it's for someone who makes something that a format that you've just described is like kind of rigid. Like, right. Where would you see it if you were a viewer of the channel that you're kind of responding to this? The biggest way to see it is the vehicles that I choose to review. It is very clear to me that certain types of vehicles do a lot better than others even certain country of origins of vehicles, that sort of thing. And that heavily informs the decisions that I make about which vehicles review. I've always told people, and I believe deeply, if it was up to me, my entire channel would be 80s and 90s weird cars <laughs> that were like too high tech for their time. Like I just did a review on a Nissan Max from the day from 1986 that talked to you. Like when the door was open, it would say, the door is open. It was ridiculous. And I would love to review more cars like that, but my metrics tell me that actually people don't really want that all that much. They want new cars. Yeah. There's a lot of SUVs and family cars on your channel. Is that a connection between the metrics and what people are buying? Sure. And obviously that there's an ad rate connection there too. As much as I love to do videos with weird European cars, Cadillac Escalade, Chevy Tahoe. I mean, those videos just, they make all the money. You can get half the views and make the same money with a video like that, because it's in market car shoppers, you know, Americans looking for these cars, Canadians. And that's a, that's what pays the best. Is that coming through the YouTube partner program? Is that you selling direct? How does that revenue work for you? All through YouTube ads. That's what I use the best. I'm curious. Cause you know, your channel is, it, it's a huge success. You were able to leverage it into launching another kind of business entirely, which I do want to talk right. about, but the, actual mechanics of how a YouTube channel works, where the money comes from, who's getting the splits, and how predictable it is. They are just a black box for everyone on every side of the equation. And I'm always curious, like, how big is your team that makes the channel with you? I make all the scheduling, I write the script, I film the video, and then I have an editor whose name is Nick, and he's the best, and he edits them. Now, I was editing my own videos up until a year ago. It just got too time consuming with cars and bits. I actually really love editing the videos. It's kind of a fun puzzle to put it all together and make it all work. It, it takes about four hours to edit a video and I just don't have time anymore, but that's it. And then I post it, and I, I'm the one who kind of solely analyzes all the data. And uh, my best friend also answers my emails and that's it. That's, that's the whole team. <laughs> you, do, you don't have like a, a business manager or a business development person? No, none of that stuff. I learned early on one of the key ways I think to do well on YouTube, especially financially, is keep the overhead low. And also people don't want necessarily super high quality stuff with seven camera angles, this, that. I think part of the appeal of my channel is I'm a guy who gets in a lot of cars and tells you about cars. I'm not necessarily like some crazy professional who you start to wonder how this stuff is so good. Can I really trust it? Like, is he really, you know, I'm just a guy. 
And that's really who I feel like I am. I just a dude who shows up and starts pushing buttons. <laughs> I feel that. Um, I mean, you know, I asked our our team, our video team, for their questions for you, and a lot of the questions were about video creation. Like, are you shooting everything on iPhones? You got GoPros? What does that look like? Anytime you see me in the shot, I have a camcorder, a Sony 4K camcorder that I use. Anytime you see a like a button being pressed or a window rolling down, that is all shot on my iPhone. And you know what's funny about that is people get upset. Occasionally in a video, you'll see a reflection. I try to keep it out of the way, but sometimes it's not positive. You film in a mirror and you have to see the iPhone. And I get, oh my, I get angry people. How can you do this many viewers subscribing on iPhone? You need to upgrade your camera. And I want to be like, hey, dude, you've been watching for three years. Dude. There was an iPhone until today. <laughs> it doesn't matter, man. So it's, it's just great quality. That stuff is great quality. Now, it's not, it could be better, obviously, but it couldn't be a million times better. Like, it's good enough that it's watchable for pretty much everybody. When Apple rolls out new iPhone camera features that blow up your workflow, they're like, it's HDR now. And you're like, crap, what does that mean for me? <laughs> yeah, I am a tech person in the sense that I love certain gadgets, but I'm not a huge tech person, but I do buy the new phones immediately because typically now <laughs> the upgrades to a lot of the phones is largely camera related. And so like stabilizing stuff was so big, that changed everything. That was what really enabled me to go to iPhone for a lot of shots because you really can't tell. It's it's more stabilized than my stupid camcorder, which costs a ton more money. And the quality is so good. And yeah, so iPhone camera updates are a big deal for <laughs> the Doug world. No, I'm like honestly curious. Like this was uh, when the iPhone 12 came out and it added HDR video. I remember like we at The Verge had a conversation, like how will our workflow change? And then we sort of had this like side conversation, like, oh man, what's Doug going to do? Like, are all the Doug videos going to be in HDR now? Like, did you, do you turn that stuff off? Do you, do you like reinvent your workflow? Are you thinking about it ahead of time or are you just kind of seeing how it goes? No, not really. And it, it'll blow you away, but I pretty much use the default settings that come straight out of the, uh, <laughs> the thing. That's, I mean, that, all this stuff is super interesting to me because, you know, one of our theses on Decoder is your distribution platform really affects what you make. And that here is connected to like your capture platform changes what you make. So stabilization in the phone lets you make a different kind of video. Do you connect that to distribution? Do you think, oh man, a lot of people are going to watch this on the same phone I'm capturing at or uh, YouTube stats are lots more people are watching YouTube on TVs now. I need to make something that will work on a TV. That's an interesting question. And and I did switch to 4K. I was one of the earlier YouTubers to switch to 4K in part for that reason, because I realized, especially TV, people are watching it on big screens now and you can get away with that stuff. And in fact, one of the things that I'm really a little disappointed about some of my earlier videos before anyone was doing 4K, for there was a period where you couldn't even do that on YouTube. I did some great cars and they're kind of crappy, like the camera quality <laughs> is kind of crappy. And there's not much I can do about that. Even then there wasn't much I could have done but like I look back now and I'm like, damn, I wish the F40 was in 4K. Like people are watching this on TVs. That screen's huge now. People want to see super high quality. But, there's, you know, what can you do, basically? How long do you spend with the car? I'm a product reviewer. I want a week. Yeah. And I rarely get a week, especially when there's a video involved. I get the thing in my hand and a member of the Verge video team is like in my back pocket being like, are, we re are you ready? Are you done? Do you know what you think? I'm like, I just got it. How long do you get to spend? When I first started, I was militant about not taking press cars because I thought that there was some kind of quid pro quo in the industry there. And I still feel that way. But you do realize when you when the press cars come and you have them for a week, as opposed to going to a guy's house and reviewing a car for an afternoon, 
you do learn a lot more about the product that way. And it is nice to get the stuff for as long as possible. On average, when it's a press car, I do generally get a week with it. When I'm just shooting a car at a dealer or whatever, I shoot it in a day. But I will say one big benefit is I have got 600 videos or whatever. I've gotten pretty good at figuring out what to look for and what's going to be good and what's going to be bad. And I can drive a car for not that long and decide, okay, this part of the driving experience is good, bad, whatever, especially for most people. People get mad at me because I don't do my reviews on a racetrack. And that would be nice to really experience the car at the limit and really see, is the M3 better than the whatever, 911, I don't know. People don't really use the car that way. They think they need that information, but they really don't. They want to know, is it going to feel great on my regular commute, whatever. And I can, I can figure that stuff out pretty quickly. But yeah, the more time, the better, always. One of the things I think about as a reviewer versus other kinds of stuff you can do with new products is my goal is to help people make a purchase decision. You're basically saying, is this worth the money or not? And there's lots of different ways to evaluate that. There's lots of different ways to make the case that something is or is not worth the money. There's lots of different ways to connect things like, I don't know, antitrust policy or chip shortages. Like you can connect a lot of things down to, is this worth the money for you? Is that what you're going in trying to say? Or is it, hey, I got to just generate a dog score at the end of this video and you can think about all that stuff on your own? That is, yeah. At least when I review new cars or nearly new cars, that is my goal. And it's actually kind of a weird thing. It's a little bit difficult because there's precisely two types of people who watch my channel. There's enthusiasts who watch every video. And then there's like people who just kind of stumble across videos here and there because they're looking for a car. And trying to please both of those audiences in one video is really <laughs> hard. People don't realize how tough that is. People will email me and be like, this is the third time you've mentioned this on BMWs in the last year. And it's like, well, you know, some people are actually, they, they didn't watch the M4 video and they're only watching the X5 video because they're not interested in an M4. That is the really tough part about being the product reviewer and the entertainer at the same time. When you're writing your scripts, like how, how long does it take you to write a script for one of these videos? The script is only the part you see with me standing next to the car. Everything else, I make a shot list on my phone as I'm going through the car and pushing all the buttons. So the script is just a few lines of, of background. Now, you know, this this is a whatever, and it comes with this engine, and it came out this year, and that kind of stuff. Um, and that doesn't take long, just a little bit of research. Start to finish, then. You said four hours to edit and a day to shoot. Is it two days? I mean, this is incredible. I can shoot a video, yeah, four or five hours I can shoot a video, plus the script is another probably hour. Just do the research, background hour or two. And then, yeah, editing takes about four. And then that's it, plus travel time to get to the places where the cars are. Do you see that split in your audience? It seems like the people who are coming in via search, you probably have a kind of a big long tail audience of one and done sort. Search is finding you. And then you've got people who ring the bell in YouTube parlance. We're watching every video. The, the videos that are the real home runs are the ones where you get both. So I put up Tesla Model S Plaid today, and that will get both. That will get the people who are interested in a Plaid or any electric car, probably, and also my longtime subscribers who want to see every video and are interested in that one. And those are the ones that they really blow up. But yes, otherwise it's bizarre. I'll put up a video on a certain weird, quirky car, and that will only be the Doug subscribers loyalist. And then the next day, I'll put up a video on a RAV4 that people are interested buying, and all the people from the prior video are gone. <laughs> and then the video won't get any views right away. But over time, as people search the car and Google the car and they're interested, that video rises up and probably eventually actually surpasses the quirky Doug car video because of in-market shoppers. It's a, it's a bigger audience than the quirky Doug people. But yeah, that's a weird that's that's a weird one for sure. How do you map that back to your revenue? I mean, like you said, it this is your biggest income stream. 
are you like, man, I hope the car industry puts out more mid-range SUVs this month? <laughs> no, I don't have to worry about that. The car industry is doing just fine <laughs> at putting out. Truthfully, if I wanted to, I could change the channel so that it was only new car reviews of cars people are going to buy. And I would do, probably I would earn more money and I'd probably get a little bit more views. But that's dull. And so, you know, I don't need to review the Volkswagen Tiguan after I already reviewed the CX-5 and the Ford Escape. It's tiring. But no, I, I truly believe the car industry has so many new models that I could just review new cars and be completely 100% fine. But, you know, I like to do the weird stuff. And, and those people complain, too. So I like to keep them, <laughs> I like to keep them going back. <laughs> I, uh, I very much enjoyed the review of the Oldsmobile Silhouette, which my uncle had. Yeah. And I was like, dude, I knew this was a mistake when I was 13, and I'm 100% <laughs> sure it's your, a mistake now. Did, did his have the power sliding door? Yes. He drove it to all of our houses so we could see the power <laughs> sliding door. That back then was like the most legit luxury feature any of us had ever seen in a family car. I don't know. <laughs> remember it made the little play, the little, the little noise. I remember something. the noise. I, I remember, and I just, I also remembered what that car looked like and seeing it again right. in 4k. Cause I think that video is in 4k. Yeah. I was like, yep. Still looks bad. Well, here's a little behind the scenes in that video. That car was on its literal last legs. And in fact, if you look closely in some of the shots, I filmed that in a junkyard. If you look closely in <laughs> some of the shots, you can see it. And I am certain that at the end of that video, the dude junked it. And that was the, the final swan song. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, you're talking about lots of cars come out. You mentioned that the Tiguan Volkswagen has 9,000 SUVs that all look the same and slightly different sizes. Like, they're just pinching the zoom on the same design. Right, right. A lot of cars, they kind of run the same operating system inside. They have the same button layouts. Just as a reviewer, are you seeing kind of software just eat the car the way that it's sort of eaten everything else and the cars are getting more similar? Yeah, but it's still really manufacturer dependent. It hasn't been a problem for me too much yet. Some of the Volkswagen, Audi, Porsche, Bentley, Lamborghini, those are all under the same roof now, and they pretty much are run very similar software. Those are a little bit more difficult to distinguish, but it is in the brand's best interest to make sure the cars are relatively distinguished. And so each car generally has enough, and they tend to come out with enough gap that if I've reviewed the Audi A8 and then the A6 comes out with a similar tech, Usually that they're 18 months apart or something. And by then, it's time for a refresher anyway, and I can do all that stuff again. I was worried about that as screens started to become the thing, and, and yeah, software started to become the thing. But I haven't noticed any like drop in views, even on cars where I reviewed sort of a similar thing maybe twice that same year. Last year was the big year. Audi came out with like RS7 and RS6 and RS5 and, and RSQ8. There were all these new Audis and I reviewed them all and they all had about the same stuff inside, but they all did well. I think people are interested in watching the video about the one that they want to buy. Yeah. I asked because I, I think about, you know, Verge stuff, which is here's a computer inside the car. It's slowly extending its tentacles everywhere. Yeah. I watched all kinds of car reviews. I watched a lot of yours. A lot of people sort of just gesture at the center screen and say it has CarPlay and Android Auto, and then they, they move on because, honestly, that's what people are using. As somebody who sees all these cars, are they doing a good job of getting away from it, of getting away from just put your phone on the screen? Because they, they need to get away from it. CEOs of car companies come on the show and admit they need to get away from it, but everyone's like, it has CarPlay and Android Auto. We're, we're moving on to what's actually cool. This isn't quite a direct answer, but you've hit on a very interesting point, which I think about a lot. 
car reviewers are not great tech reviewers. And frankly, I think vice versa too, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> Shots but fired, was, dude. <laughs> not always, not always. <laughs> you, but I'm sure you agree with me. Yeah. You've seen, I'm sure, some tech reviewers review some cars. But car reviewers, I think, are actually worse at being tech reviewers, in part because the car industry, those people are into it because of the sound and, you know, they like the whatever. And they're just bad at going through the tech. And a lot of times, especially with more and more of these cars, the tech is a huge component of it, like absolutely massive component of it. And car reviewers like to gloss over that stuff. And now it's become, yeah, it's become super easy for them to be like, oh, it has Android Auto and Apple CarPlay and we move on. Cars have a lot more depth to that than their infotainment. And the problem is that users use them in a lot more depth to that and kind of require more in-depth info that they're not getting. And actually, I think in that sense, tech reviewers are way better than car reviewers at reviewing cars. And I think a lot of car reviewers need to watch out because that's going to become more and more of the car. And tech reviewers are going to become at a higher and higher level of advantage if car reviewers aren't able to like realize that that's a lot of reason people are buying a car now is like the software, the tech, the infotainment. Yeah, I think a lot of, uh, you know, the marketing spinner on self-driving is you're going to get in this car and then it's going to go where you want it to go and you'll be in a world of screens. Right. And you'll be able to do stuff on these screens. And thus, the screens are really important. Yeah. Whereas I don't think we're anywhere close to that. But the way that's expressed now is. I don't know, like the new Jeep Grand Wagoneer runs Fire OS in the back seat. And you have to know something about Amazon's TV strategy to tell people whether or not the screen in the back of a Jeep is any good. That is like a huge collision. And there are the huge business decisions there. They partnered with Amazon as opposed to Google to run Chromecast or whatever. And it that to me feels like a level of complexity added to a car review that might turn you away from quirks and features. Here's the light design. Here's where all the logos are to now I'm walking you through an interface of a fire TV in the back of an SUV. And I do get complaints when I go too much in the infotainment. Cause I get really into when I get into a car that has a new, fully new infotainment technology. I just did the new Mercedes S class the other day and it's like a new version of their system. And I'm, I'm really into that, but I have to walk it back. People get upset if you go through too much, which I get. But the one thing, though, that's interesting, I've always felt that as cars get more screen-focused, it'll actually help me. The screens have some of the features now, because I focus more on the quirks and features and kind of less on the driving experience. And these screens are now offering some wild quirks. You know, <laughs> Tesla, Tesla's got video games in the damn cars. That's insane. I was in a, God, what was it the other day? Maybe a Chrysler Pacifica, probably that same thing, where they had, you know, YouTube's built in. Baby Shark has its own app in the rear seat DVD entertainment. There's all this crazy stuff in cars and in car tech now and in screens. And I actually am like, I'm here for it. I'm like, bring on the weird stuff because it's just more quirks to talk about. <laughs> and that's what people seem to really, to really love. I love that stuff. Wait, you talk about uh, like helping people make a, a purchase decision. I look at all the screens. I look at EVs. I'm like, oh, crap. These things are smartphones on wheels. I should never buy a car again. I should only lease a car and I should just trade it in every three years the same way that I trade in my iPhone every three years. Do you see that from your viewership? Do you, is that reflected in how you evaluate the purchase decision? It's certainly more and more how I'm feeling about new cars, but it's not how everybody feels for sure. And especially because most people still haven't even come close to making the transition to EVs, but there are a lot of screens and stuff. And yeah, out of warranty ownership of some of these vehicles is not a <laughs> the world I want to live in. 
I don't know about my viewers. I don't know that it would matter that much to my channel because whether you're leasing the car and then ditching it or buying it to hold, you still want to know, you know, the, the new stuff, what's cool, what's interesting. And so I don't know that it would matter that much to my channel, but I do think that more and more people are going in the direction you're talking about leasing and improvements are made now so quickly and so dramatically that who wants to buy a car? And some of these leases are so heavily subsidized by tax breaks and such, especially for electric cars, that it makes just you can't not lease almost. Do you think about software updates? Like, you know, Tesla has this full self driving beta that is a loaded term that we should maybe talk about. But are you like, crap, I got to review the car again? No, generally because usually there's another car from that automaker coming down the line that I can review. But I do think about that. The videos, the videos are not current for that long when you really think about it. Maybe you can get three good years. But, you know, typically at that point, the automaker is doing something else that makes me want to re-review the car anyway. Like there's a full redesign or a big facelift or a performance model comes out. And I can kind of sneak some of the new stuff into those, you know, to a review of that car. We spend a lot of time in the show talking about big tech, Apple, Google, Facebook. They're in the cars in some ways with Android Auto and CarPlay. You obviously built your business on a Google platform. How have you seen all this collide? Like, how has Big Tech shaped this industry? Because it, it seems like it shaped it in a lot of ways, and no one has ever taken a step back and said, this is what it looks like now. Yeah, that's an interesting point. In terms of taking a step back, I don't really think about, like, the holistic, like, oh, wow, this is this is the overall interesting. But, yeah, right? Like, tech has shaped this industry. Ten years ago, I review cars. My Ford GT, right, has no screen in it, right? Like, that car, in theory, if you could turn your phone on airplane mode, get in that car and no one would know where you are, right? Like now it's insane. I record the videos on, yeah, on an Apple iPhone. I make all the money on a Google, on a Google platform. The big tech has owned an enormous, it has if every space, but of the car space as well. And I think it's only going to continue to increase. And Apple CarPlay is now something people are absolutely essential for most people in cars or Android Auto. It's crazy. And like we were talking about earlier, I think a lot of traditional car people aren't ready for this, or they weren't ready for it. And they're now sort of curmudgeon, either curmudgeonly going with the flow or kind of new cars are leaving them behind. It is pretty crazy how the tech world has taken over a lot of worlds, to be honest. All right. So now you got to answer which car maker is doing the best and which car maker is doing the worst. In terms of tech, not a popular answer, but I truly believe Mercedes-Benz has the best in-car tech. The MBUX system is amazing. It really works incredibly well. It's fantastic. In terms of driver assist, and Mercedes is also great there. Chrysler, believe it or not, I was in a Jeep the other day that had amazingly good driver assist. And Tesla, truthfully, Tesla's got great driver assist tech. I don't think Tesla's infotainment tech is quite at the top anymore, but I would put it right up there behind MBUX for the very best. But there's a lot of great systems on the market. And you can tell now, it's kind of funny. Everybody says there are no bad cars anymore, which is kind of true. Like all cars are pretty good. They get good mileage. They're safe. But there are there is bad tech in cars. And that's kind of the new <laughs> frontier. You can get in some cars, you touch screens, and it's like, I'm not waiting for this button. You know, it's like a millisecond, but it's not a tenth of a millisecond. So you're upset. But uh, yeah, I, I think that those, the, the luxury brands do a really good job. But I think specifically Mercedes-Benz is great. Tesla has some great stuff. Some of the cars are just are not quite as strong. I'm trying to think. Honestly, exotic cars. Ferrari's new tech is a kind of a disaster. But yeah, there's. I would say those two are probably the best. You were careful to call it driver assist there. I know there's a little controversy in your world. <laughs> is that? Are, I've gotten called out on that. Well, I'm just. I'm wondering. I mean, that's like there's the marketing, there's the reality of tech, the marketing of how tech works, and the reality of it often diverge. And then there's what people 
just call stuff. Like, I mean, that's a fight for every reviewer, right? For every product, for every marketing decision. How have you landed on that? I, I much prefer to say self-driving. The Cadillac CT6 has this great self-driving feature because truthfully, if you talk to humans, any non, non-tech person or non-car reviewer, that's how they know it. And I think in the end, the lexicon is going to probably win out. You know, <laughs> like that will probably beat this movement to call it driver assist. But I have gotten called out for it. And so I'm very careful these days. We call it driver assist. It is not self-driving. <laughs> for now, I'll use those terms. <laughs> I'll use those terms for now because I have to. But I do think there's a lot of things in the world that aren't quite what we call them, you know, but they, that's what they are. And I think that eventually that's just how people that's how people think of it, truthfully. You get in the car, the steering wheel turns itself, and it's going and stop and stopping and starting. To most people, that's it. That's self-driving. <laughs> that's all you need. Well, it's funny. The episode before this is uh, the CEO of a self-driving company. He's like, we're nowhere near there yet. Yeah. Right? And I think right. that, that gap is like... That is a good point. They're not truly at the level that they would consider self-driving, but like, talk to your nephew, talk to your friend, like, right? Like, they're you sit in a car and the steering wheel starts turning, going around a curve and they're like, holy crap, this thing drives itself. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they're saying. You know, I think that the interesting, my mom has a Mercedes that can do some of that. And she's like, F this, like I will <laughs> never trust it. And then my sister has a Tesla model three that can do some of that. And she's like, this is all I want in the world. Right. Yeah. And it's all I want in the world. It's so funny. Car enthusiasts are behind. Like, I drive to LA twice a week to film and in Southern California, driving from LA to San Diego, that's a nightmare. It, it, with no traffic, it's an hour and a half. With traffic, it can be four. Driving in a, in a car that has good driver assist technology, <laughs> my goal is to just answer emails. Like I love my <laughs> Ford GT and I drive that on the weekends and I have so much fun. I just took it out before this, it was great. But like in traffic, I wanna answer yeah. emails and scroll Instagram, you know? <laughs> that's what I wanna do. And so I think car enthusiasts were like, I'll never buy a self-driving car. You're wrong. It's, it's, it has a purpose. Yeah. I think the second, the second they can actually do it and that steering wheel goes away, the entire industry will change in dramatic and catastrophic ways. Is your mom's problem with it? Is she, do you think she's too old to comprehend it or she's like scared of it or? Uh, she doesn't trust it. it and, I, and I think there's just a generational trust of computers making decisions that, and it, I don't even know if that generational trust maps to age. Right. Like I, I have friends who are like, I don't, I don't even use my cruise control. Like I want to drive the car and they're, they're my age. Right. It, it's like boomer is a mentality, not an age, right? Like it's that same sort of thing. Like, yeah, that's probably true. That's interesting. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I have to talk to Doug about Tesla. I mean, he brought it up. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Even if you're not into the gushy stuff, Valentine's Day is an obvious time for acts of kindness and showing your appreciation. Well, this Valentine's Day, you can show your wallet some love too, by cutting down an expense we all have, your phone bill. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless phone plans, starting at just $15 a month, with high-speed 5G data and unlimited talk and text. You get great rates whether you're buying for one or you're buying for a family. And at Mint Mobile, family plans start at just two lines. You also don't need to get a new device. When you buy a new Mint Mobile plan, you can use your own phone and keep your same phone number and contacts. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com decoder. That's mintmobile.com decoder. 
Call your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Decoder comes from Notion. Winter is beginning to wind down, and spring cleaning is just around the corner. In that spirit, it's time to declutter your digital workspace. For that, you might want to check out Notion. Notion combines your notes, docs, and projects into one space that's simple and beautifully designed. And the fully integrated Notion AI helps you work faster, write better, and think bigger. Doing tasks that normally take you hours in just seconds. Personally, I use Notion to keep myself organized and to store all the information I need in one place. I've tried a lot of productivity apps over the years, and Notion is sleek, intuitive, and powerful. In particular, Notion has an AI feature called Q&A that allows you to search all of your notes by simply asking for what you're looking for. For me, that means old links to news stories, long-lost notes to myself, and maybe even an old password to an account I might be trying to dig up. Seriously, give it a try. It's as easy as just asking a question. We all want to be sending less emails and tuning into less redundant meetings. And Notion could help you by automating tedious tasks, like managing and summarizing notes. It'll also help you save money on all those tools you won't need anymore with Notion's integration. Over half of Fortune 500 companies rely on Notion to simplify their workflow, and you can join them. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash Neelai. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash Neelai, to try the powerful, easy-to-use Notion AI today. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show, notion.com slash Neelai. We're back with Doug tomorrow. I feel like I brought up Tesla, so now I have to talk about Tesla. Tesla's like this disruptive force in the auto industry. Do you get the Tesla stands? Like whenever we talk about a car, we put the Mustang Mach-E on the verge and we're like, review it. And we're like, some parts are good and some parts are bad. And all of our comments are like, just buy Tesla. I've never quite seen anything like it. I mean, not death threats. Like it's not that level, but it's like, just accusing me of being wrong about stuff that hasn't come out yet or like that's years away based on the promises of a, of a CEO, which I just find so weird. And it's also funny, their anger is purely based on what I've said most recently about Tesla. I named the Model 3 performance my car of the year in 19. And that was that I was that was every, every <laughs> Tesla person's best friend, right? But then I said that I, that I think the Cybertruck is ugly and stupid and it's not going to be sold like this and it's going to be bad compared to other trucks. People lost it. <laughs> then I was the, the worst Tesla. Well, now I've put out just now I put out the, I put out a Model Y video that was very complimentary and I was back in their good graces. And it's kind of funny. They're so obsessed with like the day's story. And I think that's in part because a lot of these people who are that obsessed have a big financial incentive. I think a lot of people own the stock and are paying very close attention to the hype that helps drive the stock. I don't live in that world. I review the cars. I try to be as objective as possible. The Plaid was amazing, but it has drawbacks. And I try to you know, talk about all of it. Actually, right before we came on, you said you think of yourself as a journalist. There's a Venn diagram of being a journalist, of being a YouTuber, of being an influencer, of being an entrepreneur on YouTube. Tell me why you say you're a journalist. I consider myself to be more of a journalist than an entertainer. I'm doing product reviews. A, a lot of people, a lot of in-market car shoppers are basing decisions, or at least partially basing decisions off what I'm doing. And so I consider myself mostly to be a journalist. The automakers are the most interesting thing about this question. They vary in how they consider us. They um, 
some of them call me a journalist and, and are very, they want to get the project out to me as soon as possible for review, just like the magazines, whatever. Some of them don't want to work with YouTubers. They don't care. They see us as influencers still. And I'm like, listen, an enormous portion of your buyers are using videos like this to buy cars. And they just, they haven't got there yet. It's an interesting kind of mix about, you know, what is the legitimacy of this career? When I say I'm a journalist, what I tend to mean is there's a tiny link on every Verge page that says ethics statement and you can click it and that will tell you we don't have stock in Tesla. I'm not allowed to own any. We can't take things for free. And if we do take review samples, we have to give them back and on and on and on. Is that what you're trying to communicate? Is that for, from your time at Jalopnik? Is that how does that play out for you? I'm militant about stuff like that. So for years, I didn't take press cars. When COVID hit, my wife and I were trying to get pregnant and I just couldn't go into car dealers. And so we felt we had a little bit of a higher risk. So I started taking more press cars and that's kind of continued. So I do that now. I would say a third of the cars that I reviewed like are delivered to my house and I film them and they're from the automaker. But other than that, I, yeah, I don't have any stock in any automaker at any capacity ever. I'm very cautious about press trips. All of my journalists compatriots go on free press trips. This is something that not everybody is aware of, but I'm sure you are. The, you know, the automaker pays to fly the journalist, often business class, to whatever city. They put them up in a beautiful hotel and they give you this amazing experience. Often it's a, one day is a driving day of the car, but then the second day is like an adventure at a theme park or a private tour of something or whatever. Then you're supposed to go home and write an objective review of this product. I think that shit's crazy. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. I think that's <laughs> You're definitely allowed to say that. We're keeping think, that. Okay. When I go on press trips, I pay my own way. And I think I'm the only car journalist right now who's doing it. The New York Times used to also do it, but they stopped reviewing cars, probably because it was so costly <laughs> <laughs> to have to do all that stuff. But I'll put myself up at a day's in, you know, a couple miles away. I don't want to be involved in any of that stuff. I make good money from YouTube, and I don't want anybody to ever accuse me of, oh, you, you know, you took some... $400 flight from whatever, you're biased. It's like, no, I can do it all myself just to be completely free of that kind of stuff. But be careful when you watch car reviews or frankly any product reviews, but especially cars because you have to get the person to the thing. It's very different than giving a product. And I, I just, I find that to be so ethically troublesome personally. Yeah, it's our policy too. You can go read it. What's funny is it, it the two industries where it's the worst, the car industry and the camera industry. Oh, really? Like, if you review cameras, like, a camera company would be like, would you like to come to Iceland and use the camera to take <laughs> pictures of an iceberg? And it's like, nah, dude, just give I us a camera. Like, it's small. You can just send it to us. That's what I always tell the automakers about cars. That, you know, I just got an invite to go new, to drive the new Ford Maverick in Nashville. And, you know, they probably have some country music <laughs> thing, themed thing that you get to go to. Just bring the car to my damn house. I'll drive it around my neighborhood, you know, where I usually drive, and then I'll review the car. I don't want the special treatment. Because there might be a day when you make something that I want to review negatively. And when that day comes, I don't want to sit there and say, boy, if I review this negatively, I'm not going to get to go on that next trip. They're going to cut me off from getting that next car. And so I've also always maintained very close relationships with car dealerships. I just had an incident this week where an automaker told me, no, they wouldn't let me review a certain car. And I called up a dealer and I'm reviewing it tomorrow anyway. <laughs> it's like, well, you, made it like, <laughs> you can do this. And I'm cool with that. And so... If an automaker thinks I've said too many negative things, fine. I got other sources. I'll figure it out. Um, but my journalists, the other guys don't always do that. I feel like a part of that comes because you started at Jalopnik, which was militant about that stuff too. Do you think that's where it comes from and that's maybe why the other car YouTubers don't do it that way? 
Yeah, that, but also because it, it, at the same time I was working for Zlotnik, I was working for another publication where we would go on the trips, and we all kind of thought it was stupid, but I saw firsthand, like, you know, the guy from the Schenectady Eagle is getting flown <laughs> out to, re- to Palm Springs to review some new supercar, and I'm like, how is this happening? Like, I can't believe this is so, this, I just don't trust these things anymore. And, you know, you mentioned the camera industry. Don't you think the travel industry is probably the same? Oh, yeah. I feel like once you go in, like, real, like, lifestyle, like, hotels, tourism, like, that stuff. Yeah. I only look at Google reviews for that stuff. I don't buy any (laughs) professional (laughs) reviews. Yeah. Luxury (laughs) handbags, just, like, down the line. Uh, But, like, I feel like that coverage is tinged with a hint of absurdity. Like, I know some of those writers, and they know, and it, it comes through that, fundamentally this whole cycle is ridiculous and like the luxury handbag isn't it doesn't it couldn't murder you the way a car can um (laughs) (laughs) that's true that's true there is and when you read it you do it does come through in the the prose it's like yeah this is ridiculous (laughs) uh kind of an important intersection here with youtube is yet there's youtube partner program that's where you're making a bunch of your money but there are brand deals on youtube people want to come and do integrations i've seen some of those ads with you you're your own business manager, right? One of the lines for us is like, we have a sales team. I know they're often irritated with me, but they're off doing their thing. And there's a wall between our newsroom and sales. You don't have that wall. Do you feel the pressure there? Yeah, I almost never do those. So I've only done four in the entire time I've done this. There's a reason for that. And the main reason is I have always felt that because I feel like I'm a journalist reviewing these products, in order for me to be have like a kind of an objective, non-biased standard, I think it's bad form to have a stupid ad at the start of every video. Especially because you can just tell some of these guys are so hollow, the way they introduce it. Like, you should check out this watch or whatever. And it's like, they're so obviously not believing in it. They're just kind of reading a script. I don't like to do a lot of them. But... At the same time, I look at everybody else doing them every video, and I'm like, well, I should, you know, here and there, I should do one. Um, and so if it's a product that I've used or a product that I like, I will occasionally do them. But yeah, I don't like doing that stuff. And also, and I think the real key for the re- real important reason I don't do those those kind of things, and I like to believe this is true, is I've always felt, and my wife's always felt, that if I do those, I get more money up front, but I think long-term, people get annoyed with the content And I think people question your objectivity. And I think one of the reasons that I've been able to remain kind of near the top in cars is because like there's not that stuff and people believe the stuff I'm telling them, not I'm getting paid off. And I think that that's a really, really important standard to maintain. And so, yes, I know my colleagues are making more from those ads and they will for the whole video, no matter how long it's up. And I'm not getting that. But I think, I mean, I've been at this eight years. I think that that longevity is rare on YouTube and it's kind of shown, it's kind of proven that thought. That kind of leads me to sustainability. You obviously have pretty low overhead. You're doing well. Is your YouTube revenue sustainable? Can you keep doing it for a long time? Something I hadn't even considered is the concept of the difference between a YouTuber who does like lifestyle content and product reviews until MKBHD podcast Marcus brought that up. And I was like, huh, I never even thought that like, I guess I, some of these people fall off the face of the earth because people get tired of them. People will surely get tired of me. But at the end of the day, you're doing product reviews. Like the product is the new thing not the lifestyle thing that you're the weird new thing you decided to do that day for views. And so I think as long as I can do product reviews, I think it'll sustain. I hope so for a long, for a long time. That's the dream. <laughs> yeah. Mark, we had Marquez on decoder and we had a version of the same conversation and he's like, look, it's pretty hard for me to get in trouble. Like some of the other YouTubers. 
I'm just like, here's a new phone. Like, and I don't swear. And that's like enough to keep me in the pocket. I, I think that's like pretty fascinating. It is fascinating. And it's, and, and whenever I watch some of these people, I think to myself like, Oh my gosh, that could happen to me. But like, my personality comes through in the videos to an extent, but like at the end of the day, yeah, I'm doing a car review. Like I think it's in some sense it's easier to do a product review because I hear a lot about the pressure to come up with content from my fellow YouTubers. And I have the opposite problem. I have too much content. I have the pressure of scheduling everything and actually getting everything filmed and that sort of thing. And I definitely would rather be in my position than try to come up with something new every day or every week. Do you worry about burnout? Cause that's something I hear from creators all the time. Yeah, I worry about it, but it's never happened. Like I told you before, I, I'm still like every time I go to film a car, I'm so excited. I am terrified. I swear one day I know I'm going to show up and be like, this sucks. I don't want to do this, but it has never happened. And I've been doing it a long time. So I don't know. Yeah, maybe someday I'll get burned out. I do worry about it because I hear about other creators doing it. And I also think for a lot of creators, you can kind of tell when they're just like, they got to turn out content, but they're not into it. And I'm very lucky that that hasn't happened for me yet the way that's expressed is the algorithm changes and everyone chases the new format right and then they burn it out and the algorithm changes and everyone ch- and you're like here's my format and i'm gonna use the data to like review different kinds of cars but the structure is there what's really interesting about this is i have this whole series of questions about why you launched cars and bids and kind of baked into them as an assumption is you need to diversify away from youtube in case there's burnout or the algorithm kills you but that doesn't seem to be the case at all there's a couple things I do see with the algorithm and with YouTube. Views are slowing down, and they, that's generally true among car YouTubers. There are more of us now, and so I, it seems to me that we're sharing in it more. When I first started this, the views were definitely stronger. Now, interestingly, income is up almost enough to compensate, so it hasn't really been a problem, but I could see it being a problem. The biggest issue that I have, though, with YouTube ultimately is I'm not in control of any of this stuff. So like at the end of the day, they could turn it off tomorrow. It's obviously not in their best interest to do that, but I still worry. And so, yeah, Cars and Bids was born from the desire to diversify. And also, I I just, it wasn't just necessarily a thought that I would lose YouTube or lose the revenue or lose the views. It was also like, I've got this platform. I would be stupid if I didn't take more advantage of it somehow. And so I just felt like I kind of had to. It, It is a diversification in a sense, but it was also like, you're lucky. No one else has this platform. You should do something with it because otherwise you're wasting this like amazing gift. We're going to pause right there to take a break. But when we come back, we're going to talk more about cars and bids. Right now, businesses are facing tough choices. Do you cut costs or drive growth? Solve for today or build for tomorrow? Do you satisfy your shareholders or satisfy your customers? The answer is yes. You don't have to choose. With the intelligent platform for digital business from ServiceNow, you can say yes to unifying your existing systems and yes to accelerating growth. Visit servicenow.com to see how we can help you put yes to work. The world works with ServiceNow. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. 
Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Doug and I were just starting to talk about his new auction website, Cards and Bids, and locking his livelihood to YouTube. It's interesting that Doug chose to not put his videos on TikTok or start Patreon, but instead start an entirely new business outside of creating video. He started a car auction site. When I talk to other creators about diversifying, it's usually like to TikTok, right? Or it's to another platform in some other way. You built a business from the ground up. There are major competitors in that space. What was your like decision process to car auctions? Well, it was clear to me that there was room for more. The biggest competitors, I think, were leaving a little bit of room for more. And also, I don't know, if I had known how hard it was going to be, I, don't know if I, would have done it. I should have just got on TikTok. I often tell my business partner, I should have just started a damn podcast. <laughs> that would have been way easier. But the, the benefit of this is now that it's been a year, I don't feel like we're like safe in this business in any stretch of the imagination, but we've proven the concept. It's working. We're profitable. We're running 20 car auctions a day. Like this worked. And the benefit now is like, here's something I actually possess that I could sell or that I could transition to. And the channel isn't really quite like that. Yeah. You know, when we had Marquez on the show, he was hinting heavily that he was going to start another channel that other people were on, they've launched that channel. You don't have a B team. There's not like a secondary channel with other car reviewers that you're going to introduce, right? Right. No, that's not, I don't think that that's a legitimate strategy, really. If you're trying to diversify away from YouTube, you got to look at it and be like, that's not, how's that the smart move, basically? When I looked at it, it seemed to me to be clear that the smart move is to create something like this. I didn't really realize that not that many creators had done it because <laughs> people are people in the creating space. That's the first thing they want to know. Like, this is interesting. You took this audience and moved them to a different thing. And apparently it is pretty interesting. It seemed to me to be kind of a logical move. But at the same time, I look at it and say it was an it wasn't is an enormous undertaking, an enormous amount of work. We, I have my channel. I keep really low overhead. Well, cars and bids. We have a dozen employees like it's a whole different ballgame. And that was that was all very, very, very difficult. So you launched this in the middle of 2020. Obviously, the easiest year to launch a business with a dozen employees uh, is the thing. <laughs> what were we thinking? Just go for it, man. Uh, did you hire everybody remotely? Do you have an office? How does this work? No, everybody's remote. Uh, we, most of us are in San Diego just by chance. My partner's here and then a couple other people. And then we moved a guy out here thinking we'd have an office. But we've all agreed that an office is not the way to go. We now have people all over the country and a couple of people, a couple of our writers are in Europe. But yeah, what, did, what were we thinking? Launch this business into COVID. But you know, it's funny. Obviously, you've seen what's happened in the car world, in the home prices, the consumer anything, any consumer goods have gone up. We got lucky. When we launched the business, we had spent so much of our initial costs paying salaries and developing it, whatever. We were basically like, we need to launch this because we need to start making some revenue. And we kind of thought it would fail <laughs> because we launched it in June of 20 and it was the worst time in the world to do anything. But 
obviously it would actually turn out to be the perfect time. And so it worked out okay. <laughs> Did you, do you have investors? Did you fund the whole thing? How did that work? No, I didn't fund the whole thing. I launched it sort of with a company here in San Diego that sort of funds some startups or wanted to, and we were kind of the first. And then I have a partner who's like my co-founder and it was, it was his company. And so we, uh, they kind of backed us financially. And now that, you know, now that we're profitable, it's a, it's a big load off. When you take on investors, that's a big thing you're thinking about. <laughs> There's a lot of pressure. Uh, what's your, now, now we're in like the heart of the decoder questions. You mentioned selling it. Is that the goal is to sell it an exit or is to operate it or just take profit? I honestly don't know. I don't come from like a startup world. I don't know anybody in my entire life personally who's ever founded a startup. So like I don't live in that world. And so I, that wasn't even something I was thinking about when we were starting this, which now seems ridiculous. The answer is it kind of just depends on what happens. I would be happy to run it forever and make good money or sell it if the right offer comes along. And I, I, I truly, I truly and honestly don't know. What's your, when I say the heart of the decoder questions, like we're in it now, what's your, what's your, <laughs> Go ahead, feel what's your no, I'm not kidding. What's your org chart like? <laughs> Do you have like a ton of management responsibilities of individuals in addition to making videos? Like how much extra work did you actually take on here? Yeah, no, a lot. I, you know, one of the <laughs> stupidest things I ever did was I write my opinion of each car in each auction. And so now I'm writing 20 of these a day. <laughs> and it's the stupidest, truly the stupidest thing I ever did. It's not scalable at all. And I don't know what we're going to do, but that, yeah, no, it's a lot more work. And, and, you know, it's important to me to put out a product that's really super high quality, which is kind of funny if you watch my videos because <laughs> they're sort of amateurish. I wanted to launch this and make it damn good. And so I'm pretty involved trying to make sure like when stuff is misspelled, I like kind of get on my team like this can't happen. When stuff, the spacing is not right or words are wrong like that, that irks me. Um, and I'm there every single day. Most of what I do <laughs> in a day now is, is cars and pit stuff. The submission form is pretty involved. You have to submit like a hundred photos. Do you have like a lot of experience buying and selling cars at auction or is this kind of like a clean sheet? This is what it should be like. Um, I have a lot of experience buying and selling cars. The auction part is difficult because you basically have seven days, you know, to make a decision, these people on these cars, but I'll tell you something. Some of these people are submitting 300 photos and videos, and a description, and they're spending a week answering questions, and you get the car facts. I mean, you know, like at the end of the day, there's not a lot more you're going <laughs> to uncover from all that stuff. You got service history for some of these cars. In the week, you know, having the auctions last for a week gives you the opportunity to pursue an inspection beforehand if you want. You can kind of organize that when the car lists before it sells. So I don't know. It's tough for people. But yeah, we kind of figured out, we distilled down what you absolutely need to know about a car. And our hope is that that will provide you with the information that you can to make a rational decision, a purchase decision. And honestly, very few people come back to us and say the car was not represented correctly. Very, very few. I was really afraid of that, that it would like tarnish my reputation and blah, blah, blah. That almost never happens. There's just so much info in these listings. As you were launching it, you know, selling a car in lots of different states, lots of different laws, lots of different regulations. Was that a challenge you had to overcome or you just kind of yellowed it? Yeah, it was. We, we consulted with a lot of attorneys and stuff. The good news is the legal technicalities are not as substantial going across state lines. A lot of people are and even into Canada. It, ha it hasn't been that difficult. The more difficult part is we've been asked by a lot of our viewers and our fans, because a lot of my audience is foreign, has asked, hey, why don't you just expand to Australia? Why don't you expand to Europe? Um, and that's a little bit, just a little bit more difficult, the, the regulatory stuff there. It's a lot of work on our end to try to think through it, and we're not sure if it would work even. So, but no, for the states, we, we did spend a lot of time trying to figure that stuff out. 
And there were some states where it's a little bit more complicated and we kind of had to tweak certain policies or whatever, but, but we got it done. You're targeting sort of a younger audience, 80s, 90s, modern, classic cars. There's a lot of interest in that stuff. Like, what's the next audience you're targeting? Are you gonna are you gonna try to go get some boomers and do some '50s Corvettes? Or are you gonna be like Gen Z wants 2002 Acuras, and that's what we're doing next? People ask us this all the time. What if someone submitted a 1960s Ferrari that was worth a million dollars? You would turn it down? Yes. We are not gonna go older. At least right now, we have no plans. Having it hasn't even come up. What we see is this trend is just gonna continue. Young people are interested in the cars they were interested when they were young. Some young people have money. Some older people are are interested in the cars that young people like as well. And I think that the trend is just going to continue. And the good thing about our business is every year, you know, it expands <laughs> one more year, right? Like, that's the thing. And I think so it's you're, a wait, you're not moving the window. The window's just getting bigger. The window only only forward, okay. right? Like it'll only move to newer cars. It will not go older than 1981. And People think this is crazy, and it seemed crazy when we launched. It seems a little less crazy now. It's a sustainable business to be built from doing this. There is a big market in this type of car. And truthfully, it was the cars that I was the most interested in. And to be completely candid, it's more difficult to sell the 50s and 60s stuff. Stuff is less verifiable. Records are less verifiable. And to be totally honest, the owners of those cars often have a more difficult grasp sort of of the online auction process and I going after younger people has enabled us to be a little bit more streamlined than our competition I have to say you've pushed up the prices of Fox body Mustangs and no one should pay <laughs> that money for Fox body Mustangs all cars it is some of the prices that are I am blown away and I'll tell you I can't take credit for any of that I holy crap the current car market is wild you've got a lower commission rate than some of the competitors you said you're profitable like, what's the balance there? Is Are you having those kinds of business conversations every day where you're like, we want to hire more people, we got to make more money? Yeah, of course. And I'm sure all startups have those. And and yeah, you know, we, oh, it'd be nice to have someone doing this. Well, revenue needs to increase. Maybe we should do this or that to increase revenue. But I don't know, it's been increasing in scale. And so to us, that's kind of the biggest thing. If we can just kind of get more cars, more users, all the problems sort of take care of themselves, basically. And you're the top of the funnel for users, right? You're like, this is the, you've got a big platform, you're going to move them to another kind of product. Are you still the best part of the marketing funnel for cars and bids? Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, there's no question about that. In part because like, somehow I became kind of ubiquitous in the car, online car space. And so thus, it was easy to kind of direct people to some, to a product like this. And I'll tell you, proof of the fact that I'm still kind of the the driver there have been other sites that have popped up since we launched. There hadn't been a lot of others before we launched, but since we launched, many others have popped up and nearly all of them have failed. And I think people see, oh, there's stupid Doug with his stupid t-shirt and shorts, like starting this <laughs> website. It must be easy. It ain't easy. And it's especially difficult to get people to it. It's difficult enough to set up a website that, that works in this fashion. That was hard. But to actually bring people there, that's a whole other thing. And especially when there are established players that you're competing against. How do you compete against people where sellers know they'll get top dollar at XYZ website? How do you compete? You have to have a huge audience. And I think you can really only do that if you already have a huge audience, basically. Do you have a connection, uh, like a formal connection between Doug, the YouTube channel, and Doug, the proprietor of Cars and Bids? Like, what if you get mad at yourself and you stop doing the cars and bids tout at the beginning of the videos? Like, how does that actually work? Do you know that you're going to drive audience? Do you depend on it? Yeah, yeah. This site, I Truthfully, I don't know the answer to that question. We're terrified to find <laughs> out. We're terrified to stop advertising the videos because what if people don't come? I don't know. 
but hopefully it just continues in this path that I have thought about like what if I hate decide I hate these people and want out like I'm doing this I don't know but that hasn't happened and our fingers are crossed that it, does, it doesn't <laughs> what happens if you sell it if you get burned out of YouTube and you're like cars and bids is my job and your marketing funnel goes away that's one risk if you sell cars and bids yeah. they're gonna be like well now we want 50 videos a month to increase the funnel that's right. And that was something we always thought about. And it's something we often think about still, if we do ever sell it, yeah, they're going to want Doug because he's a part of it. I will say, if you go on the site, you'll notice there's not a lot of Doug integrated into it. And that was intentional for that reason. We wanted to be able to break it away if we could, either in a sale or honestly, if it ever sort of became bigger and different than Doug, they wanted to go in different directions, we could do that. And so aside from that little thing, I write in each listing, you know, it could stand alone. And, it, and the goal, I think, is to get it big enough to the point where it, it does stand alone and you don't really need Doug. But yeah, I'm terrified. If, if some buyer is going to want to come and be like, hey, okay, we want the site, but we also want Doug. And I'm like, I don't want to deal with this crap anymore. Get me out of here. <laughs> well, I think this is kind of related to the, the, the overall question for every creator, which is expressed in different ways and different zones we talked about. If the business is you, right, you either don't have a lot to sell and walk away with, there's just you, and when you're done, there isn't like lasting revenue. You're just like, I'm done making money now. And I, I don't know, I hope my Bitcoin investments pay off or like whatever it is that people are doing. I don't know. I'm not allowed to do any of it. Um, it's a real disaster over here. But <laughs> but you you are one of the, the rare YouTubers that has set up an entirely independent business that once it's self-sustaining could just be the business. What do you think your overall exit looks like? Or are you still just like in the meat of it? Part of the thing about YouTube is a lot of guys just, or people just kind of lucked into YouTube. They started making videos here and there and, you know, it just sort of happened. And so a lot of people aren't that qualified financially or, <laughs> or from an education perspective. They don't know what the hell they're doing. I'm rare also in the sense that I got an economics degree from a decent college and, and I intended to work at a, at a desk job my whole life. And, and it just sort of happened. And so I beg my other YouTube colleagues who do crazy stuff with their money. I say, please, please invest, save, buy property, buy anything you possibly can because this won't last forever. And so my exit in part looks like me, have, I've been cautious for a few years and I'll be, continue to be cautious for as many years as I can. And that's the biggest advice I can give to any YouTuber on the planet or anybody trying to do anything in entertainment is just be really, really cautious. If, if I do ever, if people do ever get tired of me and they want, they're done with me on YouTube, I feel pretty confident that I could survive for a long time before having to get some sort of extra job. I, I try to live relatively below my means and that sort of thing. Says the man with the four GT. Hey, you know, the thing is though, it's, that's an interesting point. It's so funny on the channel. Sometimes I'll say, Hey, I can't afford this new car. And people are like, what do you mean? You got a Ford GT. Well, that Ford GT is up 15% in value <laughs> since I bought it. Whereas new cars, people, all these other YouTubers buy new Lamborghinis. Those, the cars lose a hundred thousand dollars in value, you know, within the first year. And I would do that stuff, but I'm like, this is a terrible decision. How can you do this? Nothing that I buy, I try, no big purchases I buy, I try to make sure they, they at least retain their value to some extent. I will say I bought a Ford Raptor last year and I showed my wife your video, you should buy a Ford Raptor. And her response was, will this make you stop talking about it? And it was like the best investment. <laughs> she, no, definitely not. Now I just talk about how cool it is. <laughs> now you want to modify the Ford Raptor. It might have already been. Um, <laughs> do you trust YouTube? It, by the way, Doug is smiling. <laughs> that is an interesting question. 
in some ways, yeah. And in some ways, it's not that I don't trust it. It's just that I don't know. You know, like I don't expect they'll they're like doing secretive stuff or like they're trying to screw me or anything. But I live in a world where I just like make sure of everything, and you you can't really. And so, do I trust YouTube? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've they, truthfully they've given us a great life. So yeah, but at the same time, you're always a little bit nervous. I think is the answer. Do you have hedges? Do you have like a Twitch channel that you haven't told anybody about? Do you? Have you done like Instagram reels or whatever? No, Cars and Bids is pretty much that. And also a, a fairly engaged following that I think I could maybe bring elsewhere if I had to, like the site. But I don't know. I, I, I believe in YouTube. I believe in the product. I believe in what they offer. The greatest thing that YouTube ever gave us was the democratization of stuff. Like you can, you can get how-to videos without having to like check out a book at the library or buy a book or buy information. You can get car reviews. I can do car reviews without having to work my way up at a magazine where I'd still be making coffee for people at this age. It's so cool to be able to like have that. And that for me, like from a pure like information perspective, I know YouTube has flaws and they would probably recognize it as well. But from a pure perspective of like what it's done for the world and what it's done for me personally, I just, I love YouTube. I truly, truly love YouTube. Trust is a little harder when you can't see every facet of it, but I trust it as, as much as I can. Well, the reason I ask is, you know, we had the the chief product officer of YouTube on the show a couple of weeks ago. I did my best to ask him all the hardest questions I could. And it, you know, perfectly candid. It felt like I was hitting a bunch of brick walls. Right. And that's, you know, whatever. His job was to come and promote a, a thing. And he did a good job at that. But if you're a creator, I asked him, people's money, their livelihoods depend on you. Don't you need to be more transparent? And he was kind of like, I think we are. And I just, I feel like that tension to me is something that is every platform tries to become a creator haven and do NFTs and Facebook is going to pay creators a billion dollars over the next five years or whatever they're promising to do. The pull away from YouTube might actually be more transparency versus more money. Yeah, that's an interesting point. YouTube has kind of drawn this line in the sand. This is how transparent we want to be. And yeah, maybe people will want more transparency, but it's just so hard because disruptors come. Right now, there doesn't look like a truly viable YouTube disruptor, but I wouldn't have said that about a lot of stuff three years ago, and you never really know. And yeah, creators are generally a little disappointed with it. I'm on like a YouTuber Facebook pages and closed car YouTuber groups, and you get complaints. And, and you hear them, and I get it. You know, Some days, some months, your ad rates are way down, and you're like, ah, it doesn't make any sense. But you kind of just have to take the bad with the good. And I just look at the opportunity that I was given and this amazing life. And I realize even if it did turn off tomorrow, it, it was a pretty cool, pretty cool few years. You know? Some other creators I talk to, especially the more lifestyle creators, they're trying to leverage themselves into TV shows or Netflix deals or Hulu deals or whatever. I'm assuming a lot of people have approached you to make Doug for Peacock or whatever it is. Does that interest you? Yeah, but the deals are just never that good. That's the problem. <laughs> like, the flexibility that I have is wild. Like, I can shoot a video in a day, whereas, like, shooting a scene... I shot a commercial with Audi the other day, a couple months ago, and, like, shooting a couple scenes in a four-minute commercial took a whole day. Like, shooting maybe 30 seconds of footage that they use took, like, a day. I can shoot, like, a 34-minute video in a morning, you know? <laughs> and, like, be home. And... I just going up to LA and having to do all that stuff with, with TV or even if it came here and doing all the, 
the canned crap. I just, they're never great. If someone came to me and was like, you could do this cool thing for Netflix or whatever, and it like really jived with my life, I would do it. But I don't know. Right now, it's just hard to look past the benefit you get from the, like the, the pure schedule flexibility on YouTube. Like my wife is having a baby here in a couple of weeks. Congratulations. And I'm, thank you. And I'm able to shoot 12, 18 weeks of content beforehand. And then I could take, you know, a paternity leave. It's not always that easy on other platforms. And I don't know. It's just harder. YouTube makes it is a, is a good way to, to live if you can. I think you've lucked into particularly a format and a category that allows for that. I talked to other YouTubers, the idea of a, a parental leave is just terrifying to them. And I think actually that's one of the things that YouTube really, that's the thing that if it was up to me, not beyond the transparency, beyond the income, beyond the ad rates, that's the thing that YouTube should be getting taken to task more for is you can't take a break. Like the algorithm probably punishes you if you do, and that's not really great for people's health. Now, the problem is no one like wants to advocate for YouTubers, right? They're like living these great lives and making a lot of money and they have the cameras and they're kind of annoying. And so like nobody's there like helping, like there's no YouTube ad. But I really think that like that's the one thing that I think I wish YouTube would do for creators. Like give two weeks off a year, average of your last two weeks or whatever. And, you know, you don't get penalized or anything for an ad. That would be that would be nice. But I think you start to get to some employment law situation that they don't want to deal with. Yeah. Okay, you've given us way more time than I anticipated. Thank you. No, it's, I'm happy to do it. What's next for Doug the channel? What's next for Carson Bits? And by the way, I'm happy to answer these questions in part because I never get to talk about like the business. Every podcast I go, everyone wants to talk about cars, which is great, but it is so interesting to to discuss like this sort of thing to me at least. Um, what's next for Doug the channel? I don't know. I guess more more car views, more new cars. I do a big December every year, so I've, I've started to think about that. It's it's tough. <laughs> so it's a lot of pressure but the ad rates are always higher in December so I try to focus, take advantage of that next for cars and bids I think is more growth and more new features those are kind of the things that we're looking at more new cool stuff that we can do to differentiate more and to make it an even better experience there's always always a lot of stuff happening it's, it's a lot of work <laughs> <laughs> well it's great man I love talking to you I could keep talking to you for hours but and I, I know you gotta go thank you so much for being on Decoder thank you I appreciate it thank you for having me Thank you again for Doug DeMiro for taking the time to talk today. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like it, leave us a review in your favorite podcast app. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone, Alexander Charles Adams, and Andrew Marino. And we are edited by Callie Wright. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time.